Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and a Bird Show. You know, we, we wrapped up last week. We had, to, we had to rush the show last week because you thought you were going to get on a plane, and then, of course, your flight gets delayed, so you reschedule it. There were some discussions. We, we had some feedback coming out of that show. We, we, we had some very disgruntled folks. Because we rushed we, it? We, we, we had to have – there were some conversations. Just want to share one of the conversations that occurred after that show. Okay, Lewis, thanks for that. I'll explain everything when I see you. I have to say, Bono, that those last few laps were not cool, man. I, yeah, so just talk about zero. Yeah. Okay, Lewis, copy that. So I'll speak to you in a bit. So we've worked it out, but he was okay. really kind of upset. I did not need to have to go get counseled by <laughs> HR because I needed to get on an airplane. Literally, for those that want to know the, the full story, we finished recording – I stood up and said, okay, I'm going to grab my bag and start heading down to the airport because that's how tight things were. And my phone beeped with a text that said my flight was an hour and a half delayed. And because it was United, they allowed me to reschedule for free. I didn't actually have to be where I was going until early Monday morning. And I was only flying out when we on Saturday when we normally record um, because the flight was so much cheaper. So I was able to get the flight I really wanted to get 24 hours later for the same price because of the delay. So that all worked out. Okay. But HR was not thrilled that they had complaints and phone calls about the shortened ship. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, pa- I'm spirit of openness here. I'm just trying to... You know, let everybody know that that not everybody was really happy with that. So, but I know you we've gotten were past very it. upset that you lost an extra twenty four hours. We, we, I know we, we've gotten past it. We've we've worked it out. We're good now. Yeah, obviously we have not gotten past it because you're still mentioning it. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving on the the news that we have been waiting for the the rumored over the top streaming service for formula 1 was officially announced this week. Now, we're we're still missing some details. Like some key details. Well, the the most important being whether or not it allows time shifting. That that's the big thing for us, and not like, you know, playing with the whole time stream, just more like time. when we can watch wibbly wobbly timey yeah. wimey stuff. No, <laughs> Okay, yeah. you've just crossed your Formula One world with your Doctor Who world. It was bad. <laughs> um, yeah, the time shift, the the fact that so many of the races occur while we are sleeping, specifically us. Nobody gets to tell me that any race is a fixed point in time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fixed point. It can't be changed. Um, and so while we're sleeping, so instead of us having to get up to experience the full version of uh, Formula One, what we like to do is watch in the mornings or in the early afternoons on our terms, and we would like to have some of the the streaming abilities, the the dual screen experiences available to us when we watch it, which requires time shifting. Yeah. We're not the only ones that do this. I mean, we know Phil does, because otherwise, for a lot of these races, he'd start watching it at like 1130 in the evening to watch it live. but it's probably before he goes to bed. (laughs) You know, if if we lived in Hawaii, it would just be... Australia's prime time viewing for some folks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be 310 in the afternoon for us, but, you know, if you, you work it out just right, it could be, you know, evening viewing. So what we know... And what Formula One has announced. Number one, we know it's starting in, quote, early in the season, which leads me to believe that it's not going to be ready for Melbourne. They, they, they haven't quite fi- figured all this out, but they realize that since we're getting kind of close to the season, they need to announce something. Correct. So I'm assuming it won't be ready for Australia and probably maybe not until race two or race three at the earliest. And then it's probably going to be buggy because they're rushing this release out. I was going to say, didn't I read something in that release about it was going to come out in phases, that there were future, uh, you know, we're going to get some piece of it early, you know, first, and then they're going to have additional features rolling through the year? Um, I may I have read that into it. Well, initially, the only thing that I've heard about phases is that initially it's going to be available through desktop and web, with okay. mobile apps and TV apps being phased in on Amazon, Apple, and Android. 
Um, and, and when those finally come online, there won't be an additional cost for those. Um, the cost is expected to be between 8 to $12 a month uh, U.S., um, rates are going to be priced according to the market, and annual rates will be available. Um, they also are going to have a less expensive non-live subscription tier, uh, which will provide the basically what they've got now, um, live race timing data and radio commentary, as well as extended highlights of each session. Um, the other thing that, this, that both tiers should give is access to um, historic races and video content. So if you want to watch or re-watch Pastor Maldonado's crash in um, uh, Monte Carlo where he ripped the entire barrier off the wall in like 2013, you could do that. Or Alonzo's flying through the air in 20... That was not Alonzo. That was Grosjean. No, no. Alonzo, what, the, was oh, he concussed last, or not? Or, or, yeah, that, you're right, uh, two years ago. Yes, I was thinking. In I was Australia. trying to decide if it was 2015 or 2016. In Australia. But at that turn, and then if you really wanted to get, you could compare side by side that crash to Martin Brundle's crash in the 90s. There's that. You could watch Mark Webber launching his car into orbit in Valencia. You could do that. All of these things would be available to you on the platform, things that Bernie Eccleston refused to give us. And we're going to get to Bernie in a little bit. The cave troll is back. Cave troll? <laughs> I thought he was a bridge troll. Um, well, e either one works for him. Um, like I said, we don't have the full dates. We know it's going to be between 8 to $12. Um, one of the other things that it will allow you to do, and we believe this is going to be in the live streaming version, and, and hopefully you can get it in other areas, but if you just want to follow the race from the point of view of a specific driver, you can do that. Oh. So if you want to know what it's like to be at the back of the grid in a, in a Sauber all race long, you can do that. You could follow Marcus Erickson the entire way through the track. See what happens when you get blue flags, blue flags. Yeah, pretty much. Or you could spend your entire race at the front with Lewis Hamilton or on fire with any of the Toro Rosses since they Ouch. have the Honda engine. They, but, but they wouldn't no normally catch fire. They'd just blow up. Well, okay. I mean, you have all these options. The other thing is that this will be race-free coverage. Or, or not race-free. Duh. Race-free? That would be, We're going to get all commentary and no race? <laughs> that would be very disappointing. Be Commercial-free should include all of the press conferences. We don't know what it's going to include for pre- and post-race buildup outside of all the press conferences. But it will include all the press conferences. I believe it also includes all of the practice sessions as well, if you really want to watch that. I'm going to assume it does not include testing. Um, when they do the testing sessions, because really testing is kind of boring. Mm -hmm. Practice is kind of boring too, but, you know. Um, and, and like I mentioned, all of it commercial free. That, I mean, I think it's going to be really, really cool, especially if it can time shift. If I can say, I want to watch this at this time now start, I think that would be super cool. Now, it is not going to be available globally at least the pro version which is the full one that includes the live streaming so one of the countries that it will not be available is the united kingdom is that because it would conflict with the sky uh... that would be my assumption is that the broadcast agreement with sky does not allow it um formula one is also said because they, they've realized that that some of their viewers kind of get their coverage by doing this but they have realized that they're probably going to have fans who are going to look to other means in order to mass their location on the internet so that they could gain access to the service using VPNs and such. They're going to do their best to block VPN access to the service. So if you were in the UK and thinking, well, okay, I'll just go and buy a VPN service and set the server as the US, they're blocking. They're going to try and block it. People do that. <laughs> people people mask their IP address to other locations to get coverage of what they want to do. Yeah, I guess. 
I mean, that's, that's I, a thing. I, 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 I've heard of this. The other thing is Sky Sports is reacting to this announcement. Ooh, how are they reacting? So Sky Sports is dropping the prices of their coverage for UK subscribers. Um, for race-only coverage for a day pass, it's going down to uh, £7.99, a week pass, £12.99 for race weeks only, and a monthly pass of £33.99. Uh, that works out to, well, the if, if you want to subscribe to the full month, um, it used to be 33 No, actually, this is not right. This listing is wrong. Ah, okay. So through the Now TV platform is what this is. Okay. It used to be £33.99. It's now going down to £150. So it was £305.91 for the year, now £150 for the month. Wow. Sorry, the chart that I had w was mislabeled and didn't show the reduced prices for Formula One. And they announced this right after Formula One changed their their pricing. Okay. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of months. The other thing that was announced this week is that um, they have hired a Hollywood composer, Hollywood composer Brian Tyler, to write new official theme music for the championship. Theme music? Now... As you guessed when, when we discussed this in, in, in our brief preparation, this is not the chain. This is not replacing um, that from the, the what BBC. was the BBC coverage and now the Channel 4 coverage. Which is synonymous in my brain <clears throat> to Formula One. No, what I believe the music that's being replaced is, um, as you recall, when you're watching, and, and we even hear it in the U.S. when you're watching NBC sports coverage, when they shift from the whatever the in-country coverage is, the pre-post-race whatever, to the world feed and the official start of coverage from the world feed, this is the music that's played. That's what I think it is. And if you can't remember, this is what it sounds like. That's what I believe they're replacing. And that makes some sense. Well, you know, it, it's part of Formula One Group's ongoing effort to de-Bernie Eccleston the sport. I know, but could they have come up with a better logo? <laughs> I mean, I would have accepted a picture of Bernie with a, you know, the no parking circle with the red circle with a line through it as the logo over the ugly thing that they've got now as a logo. Yeah. So Bernie Eccleston, as I mentioned earlier, he has crawled out from under his bridge or his cave, possibly the cave under the bridge. Oh, Okay. Bernie Eccleston of the Bad Hair Bernies has crawled out and was speaking to the press again. Because why not? Why do they let him speak to humans? Because they can't. Because they know that anytime you publish something from Bernie, and Bernie knows this as well. I mean, he he is a master of manipulating the press, probably at about the same level as Donald Trump. That's really pathetic. It, but that's how he has built some of his notoriety. Is Bernie has figured out the best ways to make comments and to speak to the press in a manner that boosts his image in some form. So I have a question for you. Okay. Before we launch into whatever <coughs> pontification <coughs> Bad Hair has done this week, are we playing into the manipulation of the press as we are press are we playing into the game would we be more objective by ignoring his pontifications only if we took them seriously oh. i so mean because we mock we're okay yeah okay i mean i just want to make sure that we are not feeding the fodder we we, we have when have we ever approached Anything that Bernie Eccleston has ever said since we have 
been watching Formula One from the perspective of if Bernie says it, it must be done. It must be true. No, but we have taken that with Eddie Jordan and he's screwed things up. And so we had to stop trusting him. But honestly, I trust more of Eddie's analysis than I typically have of Bernie's. Well, yeah, but a lot of what Eddie gets is from Bernie, so. Well, yeah. All right, so what has the messy-haired short one said this week? What he has said is, and and again, I'm going to remind you, this came from the mouth of Bernie Eccleston. Formula One should go electric after the 2021 regulations change. The man that said we shouldn't go to hybrid engines? The that man very who, same one. The man who really didn't want us to leave the V10 and the V12 eras? That very same one. That one? The one that said it's all about the sound and nobody will watch it if we go hybrid? Now you know why I had to put this in. I could not let this go. Whoa. <laughs> so he went on to say, the manufacturers provide the cars themselves, but we aren't going to pay them because they get massive worldwide publicity. It would be a super Formula E if you like. You can make cars be like an F1 car, and the only thing you would miss would be the noise. And I do not believe that people could not come up with something to make it make more or less the old F1 noise. They, Liberty, would need to have the balls to do it today. I think they will have to do it. Okay, wait. We got we got to pick this thing apart. <laughs> Ignoring for a second that he just said balls. Um and I'm 12, so I think that's funny. Um did he just suggest that they should have silent electric engines with what I would assume is recorded old F1 noise so that the cars could sound like they used to? Yeah. And did he just suggest that we amp up, sorry for the pun there, electrical people, amp up the Formula E series and call it Formula One? Yep. What kind of drugs does he take? And could somebody take them away from him? I'm, I'm not sure it's a matter of drugs i mean th this may be just him moving further down the spectrum of senility well it is possible it's further proof that he really needed to be out of the sport 20 years ago yeah <laughs> yeah that bernie eccleston said this you know next in his pontifications is going <clears throat> to be that um Liberty should use children for grid instead of grid girls. And the next thing he will say is that there should be a female driver in Formula One. Yeah. <laughs> Add those to your predictions. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that Bernie said this week, and this was in a conversation he had with uh, Christian Silt, who was contributing to uh, Forbes.com. And... It, it was a small piece, although it was the lead piece in a much bigger article about finances in Formula One and organizing races. But what he started the, the article off with, he said he was having lunch with, with Bernie, and Bernie threw this out there. He said, I got Chicago to agree five years ago, but they weren't going to pay enough money. Yes, Bernie Eccleston said that he had a deal with the city of Chicago to host a Grand Prix. However, he says that Formula One management, you know, of which he was the Supreme Poobah dictator of, Formula One management turned down the deal because they didn't believe that Chicago was, was going to offer enough money to host the race. He then added, I could do a deal this afternoon for a race in California. I'm sure he could. Mm -hmm. No one has ever <coughs> challenged Bernie's ability to come up with deals for races. Right. They have always challenged Bernie's extortion payments. Yeah. 
mean, there's a lot of tracks and people out there that and cities that would love to have a Formula One race with all the pomp and the circumstance that happens with that and the money it could bring in. But you've got to balance it by being fiscally responsible and say, how much is it going to cost me? And if Bernie's going to suck all your profits out. Well, that's been the ongoing issue. And it's why once Liberty took over, all of a sudden we started hearing talk of new races and new tracks. And it ramped up dramatically compared to what we had seen in the previous three years. But what I think is interesting is that actually if you work out the timing, okay, five years back puts us around 2013. Mm-hmm. 2013 was right around the time that talk was strongly picking up about that New York race that ended up falling apart. Yes. How real do you think that is? The the Chicago thing? Mm Mm-hmm. Not real at all. Especially compared to what was going on with New York. A, not real at all. And, I mean, let's roll this back for a second. When you take the Bernie to English translator and run his words through that, (laughs) this is what happens. Bernie says, I had a deal with Chicago, but didn't they weren't going to be willing to pay enough for it to get finalized. Translates in English to I'd talked to somebody who thought Formula One would be a good idea and we thought about making a a pitch, but decided that there wasn't enough money there. The uh, New York Reed Hoboken race was, I actually had the meeting with somebody, but we didn't get well, it very far. No, that was, that was much further than that with the New York race. I mean, they had the track layout. They had the agreement from, from the state to move forward with it up until Sandy rolled through. And then that money had to get reprogrammed. That was moving. I, I think, if I remember correctly, they had even started building the paddock area for that race and then needed to take the money away to deal with Sandy. So that was more real than this imaginary race that Bernie's talking about in Chicago. Well, I think you still have to run everything through the Bernie <clears throat> to English translator. Yeah. So, moving on to other topics, away from the cave troll, mm-hmm. cave bridge troll. <laughs> um, Toto Wolf is, was answering questions about the ruling we heard last week and engine specifications and the talk that constructors could not provide different engine specifications to different uh, customer teams. Yes. Um, or at least all of their customers had to get the same, including the works team. Um, so some of the insiders in the paddock, some of the folks in the paddock, have suggested that that move was aimed more at Mercedes than Renault or Ferrari with you know, one who is never afraid to speak to the, to the cameras and the microphones, Christian Horner, telling the media to, quote, ask Claire Williams where the impetus for the clampdown came from. Interesting. So as a result of those comments, Toto Wolf says that neither Williams nor Force India lobbied the FIA on the subject. He said, I don't think any of our customers was pushing for it. It's not relevant for us because the rules have been in place for a while that you must supply the customers with the same hardware and software from a power unit standpoint. We've always done that. He said that identical modes for the customers and us, there have never been any difference. They have the same mileage allowance as the works team. There is no difference whatsoever. That's why we have no problem with that. If there is any suspicion out there, it certainly wasn't anything that would have any consequence for us. We have the belief that sharing modes and engine calibration among six cars triggers a steeper learning curve for us than running different engine specifications between the customers and the works teams. Um, And he also insists that customers are never a step behind on the fuel specifications as well. He says it's the same philosophy again. We're all using the same fuels because we're calibrating our engines on one speck of fuel. I didn't think that that was necessarily aimed at Mercedes. I thought it was aimed at Ferrari. That was my thought. That was my thought Because I think it's Ferrari that plays fast and loose with that type of thing. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, let, let's go back to as much as this wasn't completely targeting that, but let's go back to what is the one team and or, or one constructor and only constructor who has supplied previous year engines to a team on the grid. Yeah. Mercedes has never done it and Renault's never done it. Nope. No, I, I agree. And I think the closest that Mercedes might have ever gotten is they have rolled a new version of an engine to like one person but even still i think they do as much as they can to get it across every by yeah. the same time and and that may be what christian's talking about is that they, they've rolled out the upgraded engine first to the works team for parts reasons mm-hmm. but they've supplied them to everybody else so i don't know if that is what's going on or not I mean, because it would be a real butt move to, you know, roll out a new engine on Friday and say, oh, well, if you guys, you know, you uh, customer teams want the new engine, we've got it for you, but you got to go pick it up in Brackley. Yeah. So, you know how much, well, I personally, I really dig the Williams Martini delivery. You dig it so much that you have a decal on your uh, MacBook Pro. I do. I, I, I think it's a very fresh look. And, yeah, they've tweaked it a little bit over the last couple of years. But for the past five years, it's been a big center point on the grid. Much better than the solid blue and white that they'd run previous years. And I mean, it, it, it's a sharp-looking livery. It's going away. Well, that's because they're Martini's pulling out, right? Yeah, Mar- Martini has announced that at the end of the contract, at the end of the season this year, um, they are stepping away from Formula One completely. Um, it doesn't sound like their sponsorship in some of the other series is necessarily going away, although I don't know what's going on because they used to sponsor one of the, the Porsche cars over in WEC, and, of course, Porsche's gone. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they've found somebody else to sponsor and they've moved over there. I don't believe that Martini is completely wrapping up all of its race sponsorships, but they're pulling out of Formula One again. Oh, my. So no word on what Williams is doing with that or how that's going to work out. We'll see. Um, but that's a big chunk of change. Yeah. Maybe they're mad because they brought in Sergey Sorokin. Well, doesn't that mean that they don't have a 25-year-old? Yeah. But Sergey's really close. I think he's like 24. I don't know. So we had the, the last of the car reveals this week. And, and first off, we saw the new, the real, not the one-time only, but the real Red Bull livery for 2018. Not the digitized. Not the digital disruption. Um, surprise, it looks pretty much like all the previous year's liveries. Um, I don't think it's matte, is I think the only thing is they've gone back to a, a glossier color again. Well, gloss is, gloss is faster. But other than that, surprise, it looks just like it did before. Um, Sahara Force India, uh, also rolled theirs out. Um, you're going to know right away it's the Force India. It, it, it's, if anything, it's it's a bit more pink. It's pink. Um, but, yeah, it looks just like last year, maybe a little more white and a little more pink and a pa- slightly paler pink. Mm. Um, it is the VGM 11 currently. Um, Otto Softnauer Ma- Sof- has said that there is a high probability – that the team will change its name and chassis name at the start of the season for Australia. Okay. So we still don't know what it is. What Otto says is they're still working on it. They still haven't quite pinpointed what the name change will be, but we always said there will be a name change coming. The deadline is coming close, and like anything, the closer you get to a deadline, the harder you work to make sure it happens. Um, he admits that the process was slowed, as we had mentioned uh, late last year, by the cyber squatters who heard that there were rumors of a name change and snapped up all kinds of stupid names, which, honestly, I thank them for doing that because none of those names were really all that great. Um, he says, though, that they want to find something that 
is going to last for a while. They don't just want to do this every year. We'll change names. So it's one of those things that doesn't happen every day. So you've got to get it right. So you might as well take your time as opposed to doing it early because it's going to be for a long time. There's a few stakeholders in this, the guys who own the place, potential sponsors in the future, and FOM. So you've got to align all that before you pull the trigger. If it doesn't happen by Australia, there's always next year. It will be a good thing to do earlier rather than later, but like I said, getting it right is more important than the timing because it's going to be there for a long time. Everyone's got an opinion on it, and until we all come to the same opinion, and if there's no timing pressure, you still talk about it. So he also says that this is impacting sponsors. Okay. Yeah, he said if uh, they've had discussions with people who say if you change the name, we're more interested, although not for this year. So I'm guessing that there are some that it's the Force India that's a concern to them, but I don't know why. Hmm. I still think overall when it comes to sponsors in Force India, the, the two, at least in terms of naming sponsors and getting sponsorships on the car, Force India and Ferrari are clearly leading the back. Yeah. Um, Toro Rosso also debuted their car. Looks much like last year. But last year they With Honda all... hybrid logos on it. But last year we saw them change from looking like a – junior version of the red bull car to actually looking like a red bull can yes what we also found out is that there have been some seminars and some training and some work within the toro rosso organization to learn how to speak to honda more than just this is japanese for make it go faster Well, I'm not very surprised. Culturally, and I think this kind of shocks people along the way, culturally, there is a huge difference between the West and Japan. Mm -hmm. And especially in business, I've actually run into this personally. um, In working with Japan and Japanese businesses, there's a way to do business that is very different than the way the U.S. businesses work and I'm assuming the U.S. and the U.K. worked very similar. Well, there, there was a lot of talk with the Honda relationship over the in McLaren that um, they weren't necessarily working on the same. Now, why that was so much different this time around than the first time McLaren partnered with Honda, I don't know. But there was a lot of talk over um, whether it was McLaren that didn't want to adjust to how Honda functions, to Honda not wanting to adjust to how Formula One functions. It's not clear. But what Franz Toast had to say, he said, we have a fantastic working relationship with Honda. There were no problems from the communication side. We at Toro Rosso started to prepare ourselves for this corporation. We had some lessons in Fanzir, which is the plan, um, on how to communicate with Japanese companies in the form of Honda. This was useful to get an idea of the way of thinking because it's a completely different culture. These seminars had a really positive result. It was a completely new start for Toro Rosso. We are a kind of works team. For Toro Rosso, it is a big advantage to work with such a big company as Honda. Yeah, I mean, one of the examples I can give you is um, yes doesn't always mean agreement in Japanese, in the Japanese culture. And so there's a philosophy, and I I forget how many yeses it is. It's an odd number. It's either three or five. I don't remember which. Um, But to get to actual agreement, you have to actually go through multiple stages of yes. Because Mm -hmm. in the Japanese culture... A yes could mean, I understand where you're coming from. It can also mean, I am taking it into consideration. Yeah. It can mean, I see your point and I disagree. Um, I mean, so it's, it's, it's that type of stuff. And if you run into a communication barrier, especially on something like a yes, where an American would easily turn around and say, they said yes. That means they agree with me. Mm-hmm. But they're not saying they agree. They're saying they understand. And then they go back and they come up with a new plan. And they come back to you and say, okay, this is what we want to do. And but you're going, that's well, not wait what we minute. agreed yeah. to. Wait a minute. And now you're at an impasse. 
it's very critical that both sides try and attempt to understand the other side. But naturally in Japanese culture, um, I've sat in meetings. I've sat in meetings with native born Japanese that you watch the entire meeting along and they're nodding and they're smiling. And you have to remind yourself as I'm, I've been sitting there doing the presentations, reminding myself the whole way through, they're not agreeing with you. They're not agreeing with you. <laughs> they're not agreeing with you. They are understanding. They are, I hear you is the first yes. Yeah. And it's like, that doesn't even mean that they are understanding. It's, I hear you. Like, okay, so my volume is good. And so it takes, <laughs> it takes that extra level of work. And it's so unnatural when you're used to, oh, smiling and nodding means that somebody's agreeing with what I'm saying. As opposed to what you're doing and smiling and nodding right now and you're patronizing. <laughs> I am not. I am not doing that. I was I didn't have anything to add is more what okay, it was. This this medium that we, we deal in is uh, not visual. Okay. I realize that that's a hard thing to remember. But You're they, one to talk. They cannot see you smiling and nodding because you have nothing to say. So moving on. Cyril mm -hmm. Abitbull and Renault are talking a little about their plans for overall engine strategy for the season. Make it go without blowing up. Well, see, that's the question. <laughs> No, 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 no. That should never be the question. No, it actually is in this case because if you're concerned about reliability, this is one of those things of do you do you set up the engine so that you can push it harder and put reliability at higher risk or do you turn the power down as they have done in the past to try and protect the engine? especially when you're looking at a situation where you only get three engines for the whole season. If you cause an engine, if you push the engines too hard and they fail prematurely, then what? Well, that's the balance that is Formula One. Well, what Cyril Abitbull has said is, we have decided voluntarily to make some compromises for engine number one in order to make sure that we have got the right platform. If you come to the first race and you start to have reliability problems, then that is not just that race. It compromises the whole season. You cannot afford to do that. It is about setting the right baseline, having the right platform, and building a plan for the season, trying in particular to synchronize development at the factory with the introduction of new engines because we are very limited. The fewer engines you have, the more rigid you need to be in the implementation of performance, so the focus is very much on reliability. He says they've covered 11 times the mileage on the dyno than they covered at the same point last year. Uh, they're aiming to have seven, 70,000 kilometers on the dyno by race one, which is huge. It's something they've never done since the introduction of the V6. He goes on to say, but when we will be on the track, we will need to sign off a number of things, and this is particularly the plan for test one, which he calls T9 for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, to make sure that there is no disconnect between track and dyno. So don't look at the lap time in T9 because everything will be massively turned down for obvious reasons. But T10, which is test two, we want to run in a more representative mode. Our target is more or less to start in Melbourne with the same performance level as we finished in Abu Dhabi, which is actually quite a decent performance baseline. And then we want to make it more, much more reliable and make it in a way that we can extract the power in a consistent and sustainable manner and not have to turn down the engine because of reliability or temperature concerns. That is the baseline. Clearly, power unit number two will be a step and power unit, and three will be another step. Hmm. So if you're a Renault customer, do you think that necessarily this is news that you want to hear? Oh, probably not. Yeah, Red Bull's a little pissed. <laughs> you think? Yeah, and I can't imagine, although we haven't heard anything from the McLaren camp, I can't imagine that they're particular, I mean, I can fully understand the thought of 
running it for test one, especially first half of test one, if, if test one went the way it should have, and we'll get to how much of a mess that was, but if test one went the way it should have, I could understand at least for the first half of test one wanting to run the engines at a lower power level so that you can confirm the reliability, confirm that everything is operating the parameters that you want. But given that you can essentially do unlimited engine changes, you know, as long as you've got the time within the testing, blow the engines up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> push them and figure out where that limit is and, and how many laps you can go at flat out before they explode on you. I mean. Yeah. I think that that's something that they need to have. But testing, uh, first round of testing had its own situation this week. Well, and, and now we're going to talk a little about that. Before we even got to testing, one of the concerns that everybody ran into, you know, because Barcelona is used as the test track, it is the reference, mm -hmm. um, not just in terms of the layout and the overall dynamics, but even the surface of the track is very well known to the teams, and they know how abrasive it is, and they know how much or how little it chews up tires and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when they were going to resurface the track yeah and they were going to resurface it in such a way that mimicked the old surface so that it would not lose some of its character right that was supposed to be the idea um they've they've run into some issues well Trying to just get it, I guess the best way to put it is to get it seasoned because, you know, it takes time to work the oil out. And stuff. That, that's been a bit of a challenge to them. They've had some other testing regimes go through to try and help work the track in and help bed the track in. However, Lewis Hamilton, he's pretty ticked. He calls this whole exercise a waste of money and says that it has made the track easy. Now, his argument, he says that um, the older the surface uh, of the track, the more character it has. You know, mm -hmm. it, 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 it wears in certain areas. You get the bumps. You get all these other things. And when you resurface it, you lose all that character. And it changes how it you drive it. If it's in my town, we call it potholes. Well, the, <laughs> <laughs> the difference is that a Formula One track never craters the way how a road craters. There's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, character is a very subjective term. Yeah. Because I'm not going to claim the character as I'm, you know, driving on the surface of the moon. <laughs> no, that's the area in downtown Cleveland in front of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh. That's the sur They should not have been, like, using Pink Floyd as the <laughs> example of what to do with the street out in front of the Rock Hall. Just saying. Well, that's what uh. happens when the wall comes crashing down. <laughs> <laughs> and they just left it in the middle of the road. But one of the, the things that uh, Lewis has said about this is he thinks that these changes were being done for the motorbike racers. Mm -hmm. What he specifically said is they've done that at many circuits. He's talking about the repaving. They've done that at many circuits. I guess it's maybe something to do with MotoGP or something like that. So we have that fight. Whilst I love MotoGP, they hate us because we make it bumpy, and we hate them because they keep ha getting us to have these big runoff areas and stuff. Well, that's what happens when you have to share tracks with yeah. other people. We all learned this in kindergarten, Lewis. Um, it's called sharing. And, you know, as we say in our family all the time, sharing is caring. Okay. So let, let's dig a little deeper into winter testing. So besides the fact that it started off rather cold, actually kind of stayed cold all the way through, much colder than normal. So day one, really in terms of interesting events, all that there really was of interest was uh, Fernando Alonso having losing a wheel and spinning off into the gravel. Um, they believe it's a... Uh, it, well, as McLaren said, an easy fix that was a wheel nut issue. Um, hasn't reoccurred, so there's that. Followed by day two problems with Stoffel Van Dorn. Um, he didn't get very far because of uh, a $2, well, a two-pound, as in UK pounds, uh, a two-pound bolt that failed, which allowed the exhaust hanger 
to come free, and they actually did heat damage to the rear bodywork because the exhaust system was moving more than it should have. Again, something that they they believe that they have resolved. Um, This was the first time that the drivers got their chance to drive with the Halo, and all of them got to deal with it. Um, Pierre Gasly, really upset with it. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, I don't like it. It's just a big mess to get in the car and get out. He said, my suit is already broken. He tore his suit, his race suit, on one of the uh, the fairings that's on there, He's on Halo. He said, it's only the first day, and I have many holes on the back. You have to be a lot backward to slide in the car. It's quite weird. Now with all the winglets you have on the Halo, you cannot really pull to get out. You can't really touch it. It's quite re- weird conditions, but nothing really important. I just prefer the old cars. That's it. Um, some of the and, and again, the drivers are all saying, you know, you, you adjust to it pretty quick. The visibility is about the same. It, it's that's not the problem. Um, the folks who are who are out there watching the testing, they say, you know, overall. You start to tune out the halo after a little bit. You adjust to it. But the biggest problem is that it's extremely difficult to figure out who's driving the car. Oh. Because you can't see the helmets as well. Now, we've got the big numbers now. We've got the stuff on the fin, so that should help. Um, but that's one of the complaints. And I kind of wonder if maybe the answer to that is that, and it would cut down on the amount of driver helmets changing, potentially but what if you painted the halo in a style that matched or was similar to the driver's helmet hmm. i don't know but that that's the big feedback i've heard about the halo is that um you can't it, it's it's that much harder to figure out what's going on um now third day of testing that was when things really fell apart some of the best pictures ever. Yeah, some really, really cool pictures. We put one of them over on uh, the Facebook page, so go check it out. That is of the, the gantry at the start-finish line, frosted in snow and snow on the side of the tracks. Um, day three, the start was delayed for more than three hours, not because of the snow or, or, or because of snow on the track. The track was clear. But the, the weather was so poor that the helic, the medical helicopter couldn't take off. Mm. Um, but overall, the temperatures were really cold. The track stayed wet through most of it. Only five drivers even left the pits all day. They got 17 laps total across the entire field. Only 17 laps were run. But the McLaren was the fastest. That day? Yes, because they were the only ones to set a time lap. Yes. <laughs> That was it. Um, I was looking just at an incredible photo of the tires, the Pirelli tires lined up with a coating of snow on top of Mm -hmm. them. Um, You know, we were teasing back and forth during the day of our text messages going back and forth that Pirelli is now going to come out with the wet tire and the snow tire. Well, you know, Red Bull's already tested that. Remember, they had Max Verstappen drive a Red Bull car with wet tires and chains (laughs) on a ski slope. Yes. And got in trouble. Well, yes. That's what happens. Um, So, yeah, day three was a bit of an issue. And there's been a lot of controversy overall that Barcelona is the testing track in winter Mm -hmm. because it does get cold there. Um, And that's a real push for them to want to go to someplace like Haraf. Where it doesn't get cold. Well, I, you know, I think Haref is just as likely to get. And actually, because of where Haref is located, um, it's a little bit further north. I thought it was Haref that they wanted to go to, but is it really Bahrain? It's Bahrain. Ah. It is is what's been tossed out there, and, and they've done Bahrain before. We've we've seen that. Um, what was it? Three or four years ago, they did a couple of tests in Bahrain. Um, Haas and, and Gunther Steiner in particular has come out strongly against that idea. Um, while, yes, the weather would be better, it, you're less likely to have the rain, you're going to have the warmer temperatures. Um, what Gunther points out is that with um, the testing happening in Europe, 
whether that's at Haref, whether that's over at, um, and Haref, for those that don't know, aren't far, isn't far from uh, Gibraltar, and um, I'm having a brief, not Valencia, although it's not far from Valencia either. Um, Malaga? That's it, Malaga. That general area is, it, it's still... Uh, the, the the nicer area of the Med in terms of weather and stuff like that. But it gets cold, obviously. Um, but what Gunther talked about is with the test, whether it's anywhere in Europe, with the factories being, for the most part, in either England or Ferrari in uh, uh, Toro Rosso in Italy and Sauber over in Switzerland, is that if they need a part, if they need to move personnel around or whatever – it's at most about a six to eight hour drive. Throw it in the back of a truck and take off and next day you can get whatever you need or drive overnight and get what you need down at the track. You can't do that at Bahrain or pretty much anywhere else that they could do warmer testing. At that point, it's chartering flights. It's trying to book seats or whatever, potentially at the last minute. And that dramatically raises the cost and make the logistics more complicated than just being able to toss it in the back of a truck and drive down to the track. So that that's his big push there. When they can perfect <clears throat> remote digital printing. Some of them are doing it already. Because that would be the super cool way to do it is have the factory send the specs to a digital printer that's trackside mm -hmm. and print the part. Now, that would only work for probably smaller pieces. You're not going yeah. to print a side panel or something like that, but it would be an option. And, and my understanding is that um, they're, they've got the milling machines and they've got some of the stuff for the, the aluminum parts and, and, and the, the metallic parts. Where you can't necessarily do that is with stuff that's made out of carbon fiber. And that becomes a little more challenging. Um, day four, temperatures warmed up. The track dried out, and we got something close to an actual testing. But the reality is, because of how cold it was, because of the snow and everything else, we really don't have a good representative test of what where things look and how things stand so what we know okay but wait let's we have to put our annual caveat on all things testing it's testing so don't read too much into it it's testing don't read anything into it because what we don't know is what we don't know what yeah. nobody's talking about how heavy what specs what were they actually testing all we know is that they were testing so to the limit of they were testing we don't know if they were testing for race distances and failed or qualifying speeds and succeeded. We don't know any of those details. Now you can. Yeah. I, I've given my disclaimer. Um, in terms of the team that completed the most laps total, 324 laps, 937 miles was Toro Rosso mm. with their Honda. Now, what I don't understand, and, and, and I'm, I'm confused by how this worked, is that in terms of laps completed by engine, and actually that, that may be where the, this balances out, was the Honda engine also 324 laps, 937 miles. They were the, the lowest number. By comparison, Ferrari had 768 laps for 2,221 miles completed by engine. Because now, by they have team, more engines. But by team, 298 laps, 862 miles. So I don't know how that balanced out. Okay, so by, by engine, you, have to, you add up all of the, the works team and all of their customer teams. Oh, good point. So yeah. Honda only has right. one team. Okay. That's why that number's the same. So they Thank were the you. highest number by team in laps, but the lowest number by engine. Ferrari is obviously going to have, because they have the most engine teams on the grid, they will have more laps by engine. Okay. So then overall, laps by engine, probably not as big a deal. But laps completed by team with that Toro Rosso, 324 uh, laps and 937 miles, um, 
Mercedes was next with only 306 laps and 885 miles. Now, this is where I would not read too much into that difference because of the nature of the weather. Some of the teams reduced their running. Right. So. Now, I want to go back to that Toro Rosso thing number for a second because okay. I think it's very critical that you understand that Pierre Gasly mm-hmm. he did 229 <coughs> of those 300 laps wow so he definitely was the big lap producer for Toro Rosso mm-hmm. um, he did more laps than anybody else yes, all week single driver he did the most he did the most laps of anyone mm-hmm. second appears to be I'm doing quick view here appears to be Sebastian Vettel with 218 laps yeah Gasly did 662 miles Vettel with 631 um, and then Valtteri Bottas with 212 laps and 613 miles right and those are the only ones that are in the 200 plus lap club mm-hmm. um, on the other end of the spectrum um, we have some test drivers that had real low numbers there's somebody that did for um uh, Force India that only did 22 laps, but yeah. of regular drivers, we had. Um, well, Kabitza is not; he's a reserve driver. He only did 49 laps, but we have um, Grosjean who only did 55 laps. Perez did 65 laps. Ocon did 79 laps. But again, you you can't really read too much into it because of how the the week worked. Um, Autosport was calling out the fact that Mercedes and Ferrari in particular did significantly fewer laps than they had last year. But again, when you lose the better part of a day. Everybody but Alonso lost a day. Well, Alonso, keep in mind, Alonso only did 11 laps on day. I mean, 17 laps total. 11 of them were done by Alonso and only one of them was a timed lap. Ferrari said to hell with it. We're not going out there. It's a waste of time. And some of the other teams did as well. So to turn around and even compare last year's, the, the number of laps that were run last year to this year, it, it, it's pointless. Yeah. Um, I think really where any of the teams got value um, more than anything else was from an aerodynamic perspective. They got a chance to see, <clears throat> you know, slap some flow viz on the car, run them out there. And the aerodynamics are going to, you know, the wind's going to move, the air's going to move in the same way, whether it's hot or cold on these cars. So they can play with that. Yes and no. Because Mm -hmm. cold air is, and I I will always get this backwards so somebody in the audience will correct me. I believe it is cold air is denser than hot air. Yeah, but it's still going to move around the car. The aerodynamic fairings are still going to point the, the air in the same direction. The, yes, it's it just point, more or less of it. Yeah. But it's still going to point the air. In, and, and that's my point is that's about the only thing that won't really change. But with it being colder, they can't drive quite as fast because they can't get the heat into the tires. By the way, Red Bull had a great picture of um, – they, they captioned it the reason why the teams are against banning tire blankets. And it was one of the guys in the pits with one of the tire blankets wrapped around himself to stay warm. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Good point. Now, as far as times go, Mm -hmm. because everybody talks about it, we have to mention that Hamilton is sitting on top of the testing time lap um, list. Uh, his best lap of the entire testing period was a 119.33333. Yep. Um, at three-tenths slower was Sebastian Vettel. Now, the thing to point out, and this is this is what has folks talking, is that Sebastian Vettel set that time three-tenths slower on the soft. Lewis set his time on the medium. So it's a harder tire. Now, what we don't know is what the fuel loads were. Mm -hmm. You know, it it is entirely possible that the Mercedes was running extremely light in a qualifying spec as opposed to what the Ferrari was running, possibly trying to do longer runs or something like that. So we don't completely know. But the thing that everyone is talking about is the fact that that's a three-tenth of a time difference and Lewis was on the harder tire. 
Now, as far as race, as far as distances go over all the testing period, Vettel also did uh, over twice the number of laps that Lewis did. Yeah, Lewis only did 94 total laps, and on that day, he'd only done 25 laps. Right. He did, um, what was it? The Most of his laps were on day four, and he did mm-hmm. 69 laps on day four. And that's when he got that low, the the lowest lap time. Yeah. Now, in third place, um, which I'm sure has another set of tongues wagging, was our dear friend, the Flying Waffle of Van Dorn. Um, he was at 119.854 at the 147 laps overall for the testing period. He was, however, again, got to look at the tires. He was the only one who set a top time on the hypersofts, and this was set on the hypersofts. Everybody else ran supersofts, mediums, and softs, um, but Stoffel was on the hypersoft. And again, all of the other variables. I mean, tires are one variable. Weight of, you know, are they running heavy or light on the fuel load? What setup and engine setup are they using to test into? Yeah. You know, those are all factors in this, which is yet another reason why you go down to fourth place and look at Botas, who is also running at a 119, but 0.976 in 212 laps for the entire week. So you would say, hey, Botas didn't do as well as Hamilton, but again, they're out there trying to get different metrics. It's testing. It's yeah. all over the board. And the other thing is Valtteri, other than that the Thursday morning run, um, Valtteri's other runs were either in the wet or in the cold. Mm-hmm. So um, Overall, I see nothing that really is super telling other than the fact that um, Grosjean was pretty far down in the list. He was down at a 122. Um, which I thought was pretty sad for the Haas of Grosjean in comparison to everything else. Yeah, and I don't know what day he set that time. Uh, Hold, please, and I can tell you. Where I think things will really be interesting is going to be the last two days of testing next week. So Thursday and Friday of next week, because testing goes from Tuesday to Friday next week. That's where I think we're going to see more teams trying to do uh, the longer ra- the longer runs and the race simulations, and where the team stack coming out of that should be very interesting. Grosjean set that time on day one. Okay, so and that was one not, of the colder days. And it does not look like he set a time any other day or ran another lap. Yeah, so that's not necessarily an indication of bad. Um, Magnuson was sixth on the super softs Mm -hmm. um and he was up at uh 120.317 i mean still about a second down on lewis but a lot faster so i mean this whole week was really kind of a throwaway week yeah so I, and we say this every year coming out of testing, this is not going to determine the season. Just because Hamilton's sitting at the top at the end of week one of testing does not mean he's already got the championship in the bag. And yet, that is what you're going to hear from other pundits out there. Well, they've got to have some... weather pundits. They have to have something it, to talk about. That's some of it, but the other is that... Um, yeah, like you said, they've got to have... You, you got there as I was forming the thought. So <laughs> they've, they've got to have something to talk about. That's really all it is. So our last story, and I know it's your favorite type of topic, your favorite topic in general. Engines or tires? Tires. <sighs> Tire testing schedule for uh, this year has been confirmed. Every team will have a chance to test tires oh, of some form or another. Um, so what the plan is, is over in Shanghai uh, on Eight, April 17th and 18th, Force India will tie, will test the slicks, uh, followed by Ferrari on April 19th and 20th in Fiorano with the wets. Um, McLaren and Haas will head to uh, Barcelona on May 15th and 16th to test the slicks. Uh, Mercedes will be in Paul Ric- at Paul Ricard on May 30th and 31st to test the wets. 
Uh, Toro Rosso on June 14th and 15th will be at Villa Longa to test the slicks. Red Bull and Williams on July 10th and 11th will test uh, slicks at Silverstone. McLaren and Haas on September 5th and 6th will be at Paul Ricard to test wets, um, followed by Mercedes and Ferrari on September 20th and 21st, also at Paul Ricard to test slicks. Um, on October 9th and 10th, Renault will test slicks at Suzuka, and Sauber will do the last tire test at the Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez <laughs> in Mexico City on October 30th. Woot. <laughs> I got nothing. I yeah, it does not fascinate me. Just, when they produce their snow tires, then you know maybe we can talk. I I think we'll, we'll we'll get some more you know beauty shots and PR shots from the teams out of these. Which by the way, speaking of Sauber, I have finally managed to get back into their media site. Yay! Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> it's only taken a year. <laughs> well, you know they're they're still recovering from the loss of Monisha. That that's what it is. Well, you know, it was more that, you know, being a Swiss team, they didn't want to show any favoritism. Exactly. Put on boom. They're completely neutral. Yes. And on that note, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.